0: today's message is the Bread of Life. It's going to be in John chapter 6, 25 through 70, which we just watched on that video. And this morning we're going to tackle a rather lengthy and very complex section of John's Gospel. In fact, most commentators and experts in sermon preparation warn pastors, don't try to do this in just one sermon because there's no way you can do it justice. This is like probably 10 sermons in there. Normally, I would agree with them, but I'm going to make one small compromise. We're going to, I think after we um, finish our current Sunday School series, we're going to go back and do a line-by-line study of John's Gospel so we can really dig into some of these deep truths that we're going over during our sermon time on Sundays so that we can move on to other parts of the Bible a little bit more quickly. Now, as many of you know, I grew up in the Lutheran Church on the south side of Kenosha, and one of the pastors that I grew up under was... not. Um, named David Meisner. He's one of the only Lutheran pastors that I grew up under that I really felt a connection to and really felt that that's somebody I actually want to be like someday. I would ask him what it's like to be a pastor. Him and I would sit down on Wednesdays during confirmation classes and we'd always catch up and just have a chat and he's just one of the most personable uh, people that I had ever met in, in that particular church. One Monday morning at school, I had some friends that were going around, and they are giving out these little cards telling us about a carnival that was happening. And there was going to be rides and a big carnival, free candy, all that kind of stuff. And it was being held at a church that was very close to my home, probably about six, eight blocks away from my house. So it was easy to walk um, there versus the church that we were going to was way on the south side of Kenosha. And um, that church was called First Assembly of God. They were doing a gigantic outreach at that time. And Wednesday night rolls around, and I was coming in with my little good news Bible to come to confirmation classes. And Pastor Dave was sitting down having his uh, talk with me, and I was opening my Bible and one of the, the card fell out of my Bible. And he's like, Well, what's that? And I pick it up. And he says, Oh, and I said there's this place that's having this carnival that we're going to go to on Sunday or on Saturday. And he goes, where's words is that? I said, I don't know. It's at some, I guess, a church or something. It's at, that one on Pershing and 60th and Kenosha. And he's like, the Assembly of God church? I said, yeah, yeah, that's it. It's First Assembly of God. And he goes, you can't go to that, Johnny. He goes, they're a cult. You can't. No, no, Johnny, you can't go there. They believe in all kinds of weird things. I don't want you to get sucked up into that. And he told me I, I wasn't supposed to go and I think I did anyway, but um, they're giving away candy. I mean, come on, I was I was like nine or ten years old, and yeah, I want to go get the candy, and so I did get in. I did go, and I did get introduced to the gospel. And it's kind of ironic that I'm I'm ordained minister of what my favorite pastor of my youth called a cult, um, but I use this event in my life to illustrate uh, to what the people surrounding Jesus must have felt as he was teaching what he taught here in John chapter 6 to them. He, they must have been thinking, what in the heck is this guy talking about? I mean, they had heard about the wedding feast, where Jesus changed water into wine. They had heard about the healings that have been surrounding Jesus' ministry. They heard that his, his disciples say that Jesus walked most of the way there, except he did it all the way across the Sea of Galilee. So they were used to hearing all these miracles and all these amazing things that Jesus was doing. And they're excited and they're following Jesus. He's kind of like almost like a traveling roadshow of miracles and unusual happenings around him. And so they're waiting for Jesus to pull that new rabbit out of a hat or do this new supernatural magic trick. And so they can be amazed and be blessed. And maybe they're thinking, well, he fed us yesterday. Let's see what's on the menu today. Or maybe he'll make it rain gold or something. And so they're following around him around kind of with that attitude. And Jesus takes a sudden turn with them. And he goes from this um, traveling miracle worker and changes back into teacher and rabbi and decides to use all these miracles he's doing to teach them a deep spiritual truth. To paraphrase what Jesus initially told them, he said, look, you're following me for the miracles, to get something that will satisfy your flesh, but you're missing the point. And in verse 27, he says, do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you, Lord, for this section of John's gospel. And I ask, Lord, as we go through it this morning, that you will help us to understand all the deep meaning that you have, that you're trying to share with the people, that we are not a people that run after you just for what you can give us, but we love you for who you are and what you have done for us. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. Now, as we read the crowd's response to that, I don't think they understood a thing Jesus was saying. You can see that by their questions. You can see that by their sarcasm. You can see that by some of their hostility to the way that they were reacting to him. Maybe they were thinking, well, he's talking about us working. So maybe this is the point where we have to pull out our wallets and break out our checkbooks and give something toward his ministry. Maybe maybe that's what was on his mind. So they bring a question that brings us to our first exploration of these verses, and that is in verse 28, when they ask, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Throughout the gospel, this is a question that is repeatedly asked by people. If you remember the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, good sir, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks him, why do you call me good? And they go through this conversation that ends with Jesus telling him, if you want to go to heaven, then you must sell all you have and give that money to the poor. And it said that the rich young ruler went away sorrowful that Jesus asked him to do that. Jesus hits him right where that young man's heart was truly uh, focused. He had to give up that which was most precious to him in order to receive eternal life because his riches were a block to him ever coming to Jesus. And Jesus said the same thing to his disciples in Luke 14. this is one of those hard sayings of Jesus. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, Wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And who does not, ever, who does not carry their cross and follow me will not be my disciple." And this is that example of what theologians call those hard teachings of Jesus, those hard words, where it just seems like he's all if you're just reading it off a page and not picturing it, not imagining it within its context, it just sounds like Jesus is the hardest teacher that has ever lived. And he's almost putting a burden on us that's way too heavy for us to carry. And it's the root of the same teaching that Jesus is giving to this crowd. So he puts his answer to them in context. Jesus answered them that the work of God is this, to believe in the one that he has sent. And that rocks them back on their heels a little bit. You have to remember, this is, this is sounding kind of cultish to them. They're, they're a Jewish audience. Their whole religion, in fact, when you look at all other religions other than Christianity, they're all works-based. It's all, you do this, and then God has to do that. And in the Jewish religion, you have 613 laws that you have to follow without fault, without error, in order for God to be pleased with you. That is what they are used to. That's what they've grown up with. That's what their parents grew up with, their grandparents or great-grandparents, all throughout the generations. That is what they have grown to. And that's why they have this really bad and... um, and hostile reaction to what Jesus is saying. And their response tells you where their brains were at, and it boiled down to this. They said, wait a second. All I need is faith? All I have to do is believe? What, what kind of crazy nonsense is that? I mean, that's, that's nuts. And that's why they said, look, you gave us food for the day. But within our religious system God gave our ancestors food for 40 years. How can you say that that you are all we need? How can you make such a statement? And it's because they were trusting in a religious system and not in the God of the Bible that they understood as they understood him. And I don't know how many people you've ever tried to talk to who are steeped in religious systems. All of us probably know a few people that are are very, very Lutheran or very, very Catholic or very, very Methodist. I mean, they just ooze the religion out of them. And I'm not talking about Christianity as Jesus founded it. I'm talking about well-meaning people that form a system of belief and usually around one or two doctrines and they really stick with it. It's kind of like running into a Catholic that's really into Mary. I, I used to work with a woman. She said, my devotion is to Mary. I said, well, you're in trouble. (laughs) I said, your devotion has to be to Jesus. Oh, no, 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 I believe in Jesus, but I'm devoted to Mary. I was just like, we had many interesting discussions. An example of this besides the the Mary thing would be the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They focus so much on putting their legalistic doctrines around that Sabbath day that they miss the central point of what Jesus is saying. And it's the same thing that's going on in these Jewish people. Jesus said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. I'm all you need. I'm all you should trust in. I'm all you should desire. They who believe in me will never hunger and never thirst for anything again. That's John's inspired version, by the way. Just paraphrasing what Jesus said. But the religious, religious person cannot... And will not see that. And the re- reason why many religious people, some people who are so devoted to this one teaching or, or so devoted to this one um, idea, they can't. the reason they can't see it is because within their heart, if you were to dig way down in there, you would eventually find the echo of Frank Sinatra's song, I did it my way. They have that pride in their way and their belief and in their way of understanding. They're really saying, "With it's my effort, it's my works, and that is a reason that God is blessing me. And the religious person will always point to themselves, always point to their obedience, always point to their knowledge, always point to something that is going on in their life as a reason that God is blessing them. And what that leads to is one of two cancers that I see within the body of Christ in the Western world, and particularly here in America. The first one is an easy belief system. You pray a prayer one time in your life, you're saved, you're going to heaven, it doesn't, anything else you do after that point doesn't matter. That's easy believism is what I call it. The second cancer is the one that we're seeing here in the scripture today. And that's what we call a prosperity theology. It's one that says it's my work is why God is blessing me. And the proper definition of a prosperity preaching or prosperity theology is actually closer to that of Indian karma than it is to Christianity. It's saying as long as my good outweighs my bad, God is going to bless me. It's completely dependent upon my works, and my work toward God's kingdom, and that is how he's going to bless me. And I was watching recently one of the kind of quote-unquote Christian TV stations out there, some of them on cable, I used Christian a little bit loosely. The person speaking said this to his audience. He said, if you give to this ministry to see God's kingdom grow and flourish, it's like you got God in a headlock. It's like you lead God around and He's, he's got to uh, bless you or it's like you got Him in an arm bar and he's, you're causing Him pain and you have to ble- He's got to bless you now because you have given to this ministry and, and He's obligated now to do what you want Him to do. <coughs> That's what I said. I said, wow, and I almost came out of my chair and yelled at the TV when he said that, but that would have woken up Tammy and that would have not gone well for me. <laughs> it was early in the morning right after I got home from work. But this is blatant heresy, what some of these guys are saying. And it's just blatant heresy because to even think a human being could force Almighty God to do anything is just such arrogance. And it just flies in the face of God and I want to see what would happen to this man if he got a hold of even one of God's toe hairs. If God had a material body, we know he doesn't, but I'm just saying this metaphorically. If he even got a hold of one of God's toe hairs, how bad that would go for him. If he thinks he's going to force the Almighty to do anything. It's disrespectful of God. And it's not only disrespectful of God, it makes my heart quake for this pastor And it makes my heart quake even more for the people that were standing up and shouting and waving their hankies and yelling amen to this blatant junk. And the evil to prosperity theology is this, is it takes your mind and efforts and elevates them over the finished work of Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.16 says, I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ so we know too so we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law no one will be justified and that's the first danger of the kind of prosperity thinking that these people are bringing to Jesus is that it lowers the godhead to human level The second problem with prosperity, theology, and mindset is that it focuses people on this earthly plane down here. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and you don't have to shout it out or anything, but when does your eternal life begin? Does it begin when you take your last breath here and your first breath in heaven? No. No. Unless you got saved right as you were taking your last breath and then, got, and then went into heaven, when you accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior and became His disciple, you died. You died. And I think it's one of those facts that we may acknowledge, but we don't really live it as we believe it. Your eternal life began at the moment of your salvation. Amen. You are existing in your eternal life right here on earth as Christ's ambassador. I sometimes think that Christians should buy their tombstones when they get saved and not not their family buy them after they die. And they should put on their tombstone their date of birth and then their date of salvation as their death. Right underneath that they have their date of salvation and a dash that doesn't end. Because that would be an accurate tombstone right there. We sometimes think that eternal life begins sometime later in the by and by. But it began at the moment of our salvation. And that is why believing in a uh, system of prosperity on this earth is so dangerous. Because it focuses your life here instead of up there on the eternal kingdom. And that is why so many Christians struggle with this idea of living dead to this world. Jesus makes this point. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna and the bread in the wilderness, yet they died. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is saying, look, I'm everything you need. You don't need the bread of this earth as much as you need this bread from heaven. When you come to me, you are not existing In this earth, as you once did, where everything, all your pleasure, all your sustenance, everything you eat, everything you drink, comes from this earth. He said, I am what you need now. If you are born again, you're you're separated from the things of this earth on the spiritual level. I am going to be your sustenance now. And that leads us to the next part of our message, which is what true Christianity looks like. The scene has switched here. Jesus is now teaching in the synagogue or the church of his time. And he's being allowed to speak. And Jesus tells them and us, his true followers, what true followers of him should look like. And if you want to get into a very heated argument with a Muslim or Jewish person, read this part of John to them, especially verse 53, which we begin with here. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh... Of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Now, this would not be the verse. I would lead with, if I was witnessing to somebody. This is not the verse that I would start with. I mean, unless this kid is goth and wearing a Twilight t-shirt. Twilight's a movie series about teenage vampires. This is probably not the one I would lead with. So I could understand why the Jewish audience was getting really, really upset about this. In fact, there's an entire movement within Christianity that believes this about communion. That the, with the blessing of the priests, the blood and the wine, actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus. They believe it so much that in the older churches of that movement, the people who still follow the Latin Mass, they actually have a plate underneath you when they give you the um, bread. And a, they put the same plate underneath you when you drink the cup to make sure that any none of that spills onto the floor because it would be disrespectful to Jesus to dump him on the floor. That's how much they believe in this. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. Are there definite allusions toward what we celebrate during communion in Jesus' words here? Absolutely. Communion is a commemoration and remembrance of what Jesus did for us by sacrificing his body and spilling his blood to satisfy the Father's justice regarding sin. But that's not the central point of what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying here, Look, you guys want me to make your life better here on this sin-ravaged earth. That's like giving you a comfortable mattress for your prison cell and still locking you in a prison. Jesus is saying, I'm going to give you my life so that you can experience a new life while you live on earth, and it's going to be very similar to the life you enter into into heaven if you're constantly feeding on me, if you're constantly eating of my words, if you're constantly eating of my spirit. you're going to just, Heaven's not going to be a lot different from you other than all the evil and hardship will be removed. You'll be very comfortable in heaven. He said, not only am I going to lay my life down and sacrifice, but I'm going to come and live in you through the Holy Spirit to be that nourishment that you need for this kingdom. Let me illustrate this a little bit. If I take you out to Trempele right now, take you out at the end of one of the locks into the middle of the Mississippi River, and I tie 100 pounds of lead weight around your waist and toss you over the side, What's going to happen? You're going to go straight to the bottom, you're going to drown, you're going to die. Why? Human beings aren't made to breathe water. That's just the way it is. But what if I gave you a scuba tank, wetsuit, flippers, and a mask? Are you going to be able to survive that, at least for a little while? Yeah. We have a nice time looking at the fish, seeing the boats flying around over the top of you you're going to be able to survive that a little bit. You're going to be able to exist in a realm that you would normally not be able to survive because you have a life support system to exist within a realm that would previously kill you. This is an example of what Jesus did for us. If any of us prior to salvation were immediately raptured into God's presence, we'd be vaporized. Under the incredible weight of God's glory and His holiness. You remember that not even Moses could see God's face and live. He told him that. You can't see my face and live. You do not have what it takes to exist in this realm right now. But now, under Jesus, as we believe in Him, He covers us with Himself. The sinless one becomes our life support so that we can enjoy heaven, and exist in God's realm. That's pure Christianity. And that thought is expressed in the hymn by Robert Lowley, What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is what we need to see. say amen to. If you're trusting in anything else to save you, you're doomed and on your way to hell. It's only by the blood of Jesus. If you're wondering if you're actually saved, we're going to finish this morning with a small litmus test of your salvation. When I'm training somebody as a new paramedic and they're just not getting something that they should know, I ask them the question, where's your brain? Where's your brain at right now? Because what are you actually thinking about right now? What's the mental block that exists that's getting in the way of you receiving the correct information and be able to react and perform it? And for Christians, where your brain at reflects who's in charge. Are you earthly-minded or are you heavenly-minded? And heavenly-minded is a proof of true Christianity. In verse 60 of John chapter 6, he says, On hearing it, many disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of spirit and life. Several years ago, probably about 15 years ago now, I had a really bad partner at work. And it was a kind of partner who would do everything against the rules, break every policy of the company, and then when he got caught, would either lie his way out of it or try to shift the blame on me. And I wasn't the only one who didn't like him, but anyone, anytime I needed to do a trade um, for somebody else to work with them, they didn't want to trade with me because they didn't want to work with them. And and whenever somebody else was forced to work with them, they had the same report about this guy. And I remember being so frustrated one morning in prayer before I went to work. And I was crying out to God how much I didn't really want to work with this guy for 24 hours and wondering if I should call in sick just to give myself a break from him. And after I prayed that way for a while, I heard the Holy Spirit quietly say, do you think it's a mistake that he's with you? And I'm like, well, what do you mean, God? It's a, Pam scheduled us together. She hates me. He said, no, son, this man needs me. So I arranged it so he's with a pastor for 24 hours at a time. And the pastor, I put it with him is complaining that the sinner is sinning. Instead of telling him about the salvation, it is available through me. So yeah, there was a little bit of repentance there. I was so worried about my physical comfort and emotional needs that I never considered that he was with me for a reason. I was not being heavily minded. So let me give you a homework assignment for this week. Let's all stand. Let's close our eyes just just a moment. And I want to ask yourself, what or who is your biggest problem in life right now? And if you can't think of one, ask God. He'll let you know. And now I ask yourself, do you, or ask, I ask you to ask yourselves, do you have a heavenly perspective on it? Having a heavenly perspective would be bringing the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to that situation. Or, are you trying to resurrect your old nature to deal with this problem? That's why Jesus is saying His blood is real and His flesh are real food, and his blood and fresh is real drink. Because he knows that if we, as his followers, are trying to exist on anything else, then both the kingdom and its citizens suffer. And the gospel witness that we're supposed to be living before this world is tarnished. So I would ask, what is your perspective this morning? Because this is exactly why Jesus spent so much time focused on this in chapter. In John chapter 6. He needs to be your very food. He needs to be your very drink. He needs to be the source of all of your thinking, of all of your emotions, all of your wants and all of your desires. It has to be focused on Jesus. And Father God, I just thank you, Lord, for this very hard and lengthy portion of your scripture. And I ask, Father, that you help its truth this morning permeate into every part of our lives. That it will judge the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. That it will bring our earthly perspectives into a heavenly perspective. So that we can view this world through your eyes and not through the tarnished eyes of our flesh. Lord God, I just bless your people now and I ask, Father, that you help them to lift their eyes and see where their help comes from. Because as we continue to remove our trust and remove our eyes from the things of this earth and place them on you, we will know the joy of the Lord. And that joy is contagious to all the problems that exist in our lives. So I bless your people now. And I ask, Father, that they take the words of, these, of this Scripture and, and bury it in their hearts and live it out through the world that you have called them to, Lord. Father God, I thank you. I thank you for your word this morning. And I ask your blessing to be upon your people. In Jesus' name, amen.